Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. The psalm that we're going to be considering tonight is not a particularly long or complicated psalm, but it has a tremendous amount of very interesting backstory. So the majority of the night tonight is going to be about backstory, and then we will finally get to the psalm. We are in Leviticus 24, starting at verse 1, because you need to be familiar with the concept of the table of showbread in order to understand both the backstory and the psalm that David has written. That's also going to take us into Matthew. It's going to take us into Jesus speaking a little bit about David and the table of showbread. But the place we have to begin is with the table itself. Now, the table of showbread was a piece of furniture that God was very specific about that had to be in the tabernacle in the wilderness. It was a piece of furniture that sat outside the Holy of Holies, but within the tent. It was a gold table on which every Sabbath the priests were required to put 12 loaves of bread in groups of sixes and then frankincense beside or on top of it. And it was consecrated bread, which means that it was set aside for God's specific purpose and use and couldn't be used for any common use. But the priests could eat from the bread on the table of showbread after it had been there for a week. I think it's kind of miraculous that after a week of sitting out in the desert in a tent, that that bread was still edible after a week. But it was one of the staples for the support, for the continual provision of the priests. The table of showbread is also sometimes called the bread of presence and the table of presence. Hebrew sources will tell you that it was a symbol of God's constant provision for Israel, for all 12 tribes. That's why there were 12 loaves. And that God was receiving back from them on a regular basis what he had already provided for them. He had given them food during their 40 years in the wilderness. He had even given them bread from heaven every day. And so they were responsible to keep an offering before God, the bread that was the very substance of life. But here's what the book of Leviticus says. These are the rules for the Levitical priests. And these are the rules for the construction of the table and for the service of the table. Starting at verse 1, God's going to talk about the lampstand. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil, beaten olives for the light to make a lamp that will burn continually. Outside the veil of testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron will keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a perpetual statute 
throughout your generations. He shall keep the lamps in order on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. Then you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be each cake. And you shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the Lord's offering by fire, his portion forever. So it is consecrated bread that only the priests are supposed to eat. It can't be used for any common purpose. It can't be eaten by anyone who is not a priest. That's the rule. That's the Levitical law. And now we're going to see it get broken. So turn, if you would, to 1 Samuel. We're going to start reading at 1 Samuel 21. David is on the run from King Saul. David has made an agreement with Jonathan. Saul gets angry at Jonathan. David takes off running. Chapter 21, starting at verse 1, we're going to read the next two chapters. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you, and I have directed the young men to a certain place. None of that is true. David is actually running away from the king, but Ahimelech the priest sees David and says, why are you here? Why are you alone? Because Ahimelech knows that this is the one who Samuel has already designated the next king of Israel, and he's out here without protection. And so he tells Ahimelech that he's on a special mission for the king, so everything's okay. Verse 3, now therefore, what do you have on hand? In other words, what do you have to eat? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread. There is no regular unconsecrated bread on hand. But there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. In other words, if they are ceremonially pure. David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us previously when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. But how much more than today will their vessels be holy? In other words, there's no women traveling with us. And when we set out on the journey, they had not been with any women. So that makes them consecrated. We don't know if any of that's true. Certainly, we know that there were no women traveling with David, but we don't know that all the men that were traveling with David were necessarily 
consecrated, ceremonially pure. But David wanted food. So David answered and said, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out. And the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. But much more than today will their vessels be holy. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. So that's exactly what we read about in Leviticus. The bread that every Sabbath would be replaced with freshly baked bread, an offering as made by fire before the Lord, and it was continually consecrated, and only the priests could eat it. And David is arguing here that Ahimelech should give him this consecrated bread because they've been on the run, they're hungry, and therefore he should have bread. Now, Keep your finger there in 1 Samuel, because we're going to come back to 1 Samuel 21 in just a moment. But turn to the book of Matthew, because even Jesus brings this up. This is such an important moment that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention it. So in Matthew chapter 12, let's start reading at verse 1. At that time... Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath, because they were working. They were plucking the grain. And so Jesus is being accused by the Pharisees of breaking the Sabbath. But Jesus said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath... The priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent. That's correct. On the Sabbath, they did things like bring hot bread. On the Sabbath day, they had to do the sacrifices. They had to do the work inside the temple on the Sabbath day. So here are the Pharisees saying to Jesus that his disciples are breaking the Sabbath because they're picking grain in order to eat. And David reminds them that not only do the priests break the Sabbath every Sabbath by doing the work of God within the temple, within the tabernacle. But he also brings up this moment, have you not read, where David ate of the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat. So this is such an important event, what David is doing at that moment. I mean, he was hungry, and even though the bread that he ate was consecrated and only supposed to be eaten by the priests, Jesus is arguing that God was merciful and that even if you're keeping the letter of the law but don't understand basic compassion for people, you still don't understand the law. So that's what he says to them. But I say that something greater than the temple is here. 
But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, he's pulling that uh, right out of Hosea. I think it's Hosea 6. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, then you would have not condemned the innocent. So here is Jesus saying that his disciples are innocent because they were hungry, they required something to eat, they picked some grain so that they could eat. His example that they are not breaking the Sabbath is the priests who work in the temple on the Sabbath, and his other example is David eating consecrated bread, which it wasn't lawful for him to eat. But... God is more interested in compassion than sacrifice. Therefore, he concludes, verse 8, that the Son of Man, he himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. So he's the one who the Sabbath is all about. He's the one who uh, is the purpose. He is the substance of the shadow of the Sabbath. We won't go to the book of Hebrews tonight, but the writer of the book of Hebrews argues that resting in Christ is the satisfaction of Sabbathing. So Jesus himself is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the substance that the Sabbath is casting the shadow toward. And mercy, compassion, is more important than meticulous law-keeping. And he points all the way back into their own scripture, which they should know, in order to say, don't you know what David did? He ate of the showbread. God didn't strike him down. Because it was a compassionate thing that was happening. Okay, back to 1 Samuel. Let's read the rest of the story because now the story takes a rather sinister turn. We're going to start at verse 7. This is an important little detail. Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, And his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. He happens to be there. He sees David show up. He sees David eating the consecrated bread. So he knows the location of David, and David is on the run from Saul. David said to Ahimelech, the priest, Now is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's matter was urgent. (laughs) I took off by myself out into the wilderness where there's wild animals and thieves and robbers. And I just didn't think to bring a weapon because I was in a hurry because the king sent me out in such a hurry. None of this is true. He's on the run from Saul. He's been out in the field with Jonathan. Jonathan has told him, My father's after you by shooting arrows in the air and letting him know that he should run away. So David runs away with no preparation. Anyway, verse 9, the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would, take it for yourself. Take it. For there is no other except that here. So among these priests, they only had one weapon. They had the sword of Goliath. David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul. And he went to Achish, the king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, 
Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, the king of Gath. So David's wandering with some men and so far one sword, and now he's in the area of Achish, who is out to get David, because this is the future king of Jerusalem, and the people are celebrating him as the future king, and here he is in my presence. I can capture him right now. So David, once again, decides to go with chicanery as his defense. So David, verse 13, disguised his sanity before them, and he acted insanely in their hands, and he scribbled on the doors of the gate, and he let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? So David's gotten away with another piece of chicanery to keep himself safe, chapter 22. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. Then he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was hiding in the stronghold. And the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him. And Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Hear now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse also give to you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Will he relieve your student debt? Will he? I'm sorry, did I? I just, I wandered off. I'm so sorry. Here's Saul arguing that the reason they need to prefer him over David is, look, I've given you land, I've given you fields, I've given you vineyards, and is David going to do that for you? I've made you mighty men, I've made you rich and powerful. For all of you have conspired against me, sounds a tad paranoid, for all of you have conspired against me, so that there is no one who discloses to me where my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you who is sorry for me 
or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. So Saul's very worried about David. He knows that Samuel has already determined that David is the future king of Jerusalem. Saul now wants all of his followers, all of his men, who he has made rich and powerful, to reveal to him, where is David? My own son, Jonathan, has made a deal with him, an agreement with him. That's why he's in hiding. Where is he? And then he accuses everybody and says, none of you is sorry for me. None of you care about me. Then, Doeg the Edomite, remember him? He was the one who was there watching Ahimelech give the bread to David. So he knows where David is. Then Doeg the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, answered and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him. And he gave him provisions. And he gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's household, the priests who were there in Nob, and all of them came to the king. Now think about what Saul is doing. Even though Saul is the king of Jerusalem, he has no power or control over the priests. The priests serve God. The entire tribe of Levi belongs to God for the service of the temple. He has no authority over the priests, and yet he is demanding that the priests who helped David and their entire family come stand before him. And Saul said, listen now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, here I am, my Lord. Saul then said to him, why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, that he should rise up against me by lying in ambush, as it is in this day. So again, Saul's persecution complex is coming out. Saul thinks, David must be laying in ambush somewhere. David's waiting to kill me. You might remember the story that at one point, while Saul was traveling with his armies, he needed to relieve himself, so he went into a cave. And while he was in the cave he actually took off his outer robe that had tassels on it, and he hung it just outside the cave. And David's men said to him, you got him now. He's alone in the cave. Go get him. And David said, I can't touch the Lord's anointed. But he did go and cut the tassels off of the robe of Saul so that he could later show that to Saul and say, look, I had you. And I didn't kill you. I'm for you. I'm not against you. But as Saul is going continually more mad, he's becoming more and more paranoid and feeling more and more threatened by David. And so now he is accusing this priestly family of conspiring against himself and getting together with the son of Jesse, who is David, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him so that he could rise up against him by lying in ambush. As we read the story, was there any point at which David said, 
Ahimelech, go inquire of God for me so that I can figure out how to lay an ambush against Saul. No, that didn't happen. This is Saul's paranoia rising up. So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, even the king's son-in-law? Remember, David was married to Michael or Michal, however you want to pronounce it, who was the daughter of Saul. And so Ahimelech, knowing at least understanding that David was on a mission for the king, because that's what David told him. Ahimelech answers, who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Even the king's own son-in-law, who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house. Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. Whatever's going on between you and David and whatever argument you've got going, all I know is he's faithful to you. He is your son-in-law. He is the captain of your guard. And, And I know nothing about the argument between the two of you. So Ahimelech is arguing for his own innocence. But the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. Okay, now the king, as he descends into his paranoid madness, is going to start killing priests. And this is not allowed. The king doesn't have this authority. So much so that when he tells his guards to kill the priests, the guards won't do it. Because they know this is not right. We cannot be killing priests of God. Verse 17, and the king said to the guards who were attending him, turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death because their hand also is with David and because they knew that he was fleeing and they did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. Even they knew that the king was going too far. So then the king says to Doag. Suddenly that name sounds appropriate for him, doesn't it? Take away the E and it's just a dog. And the king said to Doag, You turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests. And he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, also oxen and donkeys and sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword. But one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And then David said to Abiathar, I knew it on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. 
For he who seeks my life seeks your life, and you are safe with me. That's the backstory for Psalm 52. Turn to Psalm 52, which has a superscript that says, For the choir director, a masculine of David. Do you remember what masculine means? It means a well-considered psalm, something to think about. A masculine of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So David wrote this psalm in remembrance of the event that we just read about. David came to the priest Ahimelech, just needed provision for he and his men so that they could sustain themselves as they ran from Saul. As a consequence of that, Saul slaughtered the whole house of Ahimelech. David felt like he was responsible, like he had brought about the death of all these priests because he had come to Ahimelech to begin with. And that is the reason he wrote this psalm. The first two sections of this psalm are directed towards Saul. And David is going to call him an evil, mighty man, which he certainly was. We just read about some of his evil. So David says, why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God, the NASB says, it endures all day. We don't really know what the verb there would be. It just says the loving kindness of God all day long. The point being that the loving kindness of God does not change. The loving kindness of God remains as long as God remains. And yet, despite the fact that God has made you, Saul, king of Jerusalem, you continue to persist in your evil and boast in your evil because you have wealth because you have might, because you have strength over other people, instead of using that power and authority in order to advance the law of God, the compassion of God, the righteousness of God, instead you are using your money and your power in order to advance nothing but evil, culminating in the death of the priests of God who were utterly innocent in the entire thing. They didn't do anything. Ahimelech even said, I don't know about this. I don't know anything about this affair. So why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction. You think of ways to do evil things. Your tongue commanded your captains, commanded your soldiers, to kill the priests of God. And even they knew that that wasn't the right thing to do. And yet your tongue, like a sharp razor, told Doag to go and kill that whole family and destroy Nob. Not just women and children, but even all the animals, all the other cattle. It was an utter destruction by the evil direction of this evil man, Saul. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor 
O worker of deceit. You love evil more than you love good. You love falsehood more than you love speaking what is right. Selah, think of that. So David is writing this directly to Saul. I don't know if Saul ever read it, but David is certainly writing it down so that we who read it in the thousands of years after David wrote it, we would know that Saul was indeed in contrast with David, that Saul was an evil man who did evil things. And when we go back and read the history of Saul and the things that he did, we know for certain that those were godless, rebellious things that he did, so that there's no confusion in anybody's mind that even though Saul boasted in his wealth and his power and his armies and his might, that that was all evil, that was all wrong. You love evil more than good. You love falsehood more than speaking what is right. Think about that. You love words that devour. Notice that so far David has not spoken about Saul's actions. He keeps saying your speech, your tongue, your words. How often in the Bible have we read? Whether we're talking about James or whether we're talking about the Proverbs, how often do we read, be careful with your tongue, be careful with your mouth, because it lights raging fires. You can do so much damage with a lying tongue, a deceitful tongue. So here David again says, your words, you love all the words that do damage, that devour, that destroy people. Your words destroyed women and children and animals in Nob with just your command because you have that power, because you have that authority. And then he says, oh, deceitful tongue. Your lying tongue. There's no honesty in your tongue. There's no mercy in your tongue You use your words to destroy, but there is justice. There may not be justice in this lifetime, but there will be justice. Look at verse 5, but God will break you down forever, and he will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living snatch you up from your tent. He's talking about not a a canvas tent. He's saying your body, the physical form of the flesh that you live in, God himself is going to rip your soul out of your flesh. He's going to uproot you from the land of the living. You are going to die. You might remember how Saul died. Committed suicide. David gives God all the credit for that. He said God is going to snatch you up tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. And again, think about that. So what's going to be the response from the righteous people when they finally see the evil king taken down? Well, that's verse 6. And the righteous will see it and fear. Apparently that is fear of God, seeing God judge The powerful man, the king, the guy who has all this authority and all this power in his words, 
he is going to be utterly destroyed by God, and righteous men are going to learn a lesson from that. And God is going to get glory from that. And righteous people are going to see that and fear God and reverence God because they know that God has the authority even over the most powerful of men. And the righteous will see it and fear. And they will laugh at him, saying, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches. And he was strong in his evil desire. The NASB adds the word evil. That's the implication of it. He was strong in his desire, his fleshly desire, his fleshly wants. He was very strong. Remember, when Israel came to Samuel and said that they wanted a king because they wanted to be like all the other heathen nations around them, they wanted a king that would lead them into battle. They wanted to be like the other nations. They weren't satisfied with God being their king. They weren't happy being a theocracy. They wanted to be like all the other earthly nations. And so Samuel goes to God and talks about it and comes back and says, God's going to give you a king, but you're not going to like him. He's going to give you what you want. He's going to look great. He's going to be a head taller than everybody else. So he's going to inspire fear in your enemies. But he's also going to tax you like crazy. And he's going to take the best of all your land. He's going to take the best of the women. He's going to take your horses. He's going to, he's going to be a ruinous king to you. But okay, if you don't want me to be your God and you want a king, I'll give you a king. And then finally God, in his mercy, in his kindness, gives them David, a man after God's own heart. And even David is a failure before God, which is why we've learned so many lessons through the Psalms here of God's mercy and kindness and grace. So here you have two kings in contrast. You have Saul, who is absolutely consumed with his flesh and his power and his money and his ability to control and to kill. The matters of life and death are in his hands, and it drives him to madness. And then you have David, who has the exact same power, and it drives him to contrition and brokenheartedness and praying for God's grace. Same circumstances, same job, two different outcomes. And what makes the difference? One was a man after God's own heart. I'm sorry, I'm answering my own question. What were you going to say? I would just say heart. Yeah, yeah, the difference between them is that God has a man after God's own heart, and he has a man with a hard heart. And they both have the same circumstances, same power, same authority, same job. One worships God, and Israel and Jerusalem rise to the zenith of their power. By the time David hands off the kingdom to Solomon, Solomon becomes so rich and powerful that distant kings come to look at him and hear his wisdom. I mean, this is the height of Jerusalem power. So, so the difference in life is not what you can accumulate, how much power or authority you have over other people. It's not about whether or not you have the power of life and death in your mouth. It's all about do you use what God has given you for the good and the glory of God and the advancement of the cause of God and the standards of God and the righteousness of God? Is your heart toward God? Is your heart in contrition before God when you fail him, when you sin, when you recognize your own trespasses? Do you get on your face before God 
or do you harden your heart and use everything God has given you for your own advancement, for your own power, for your own authority, for your own ego, for your own flesh? Well, if you do that, God can yank your soul out of your flesh and cast you into eternal death. Jesus said, don't fear men that can only kill the body. Fear God who can cast body and soul into hell. Saul did not seem to have that fear. The righteous are going to see in fear, and they will laugh at him, saying, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his desire. Then David turns his gaze inward, says, But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. That's why David can say, I'm, I'm a tree that bears fruit every year. I'm a tree that's been blessed by God. I'm well watered. I'm well planished. I'm taken care of. I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. And I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. Notice again, so very important, and boy, we've only talked about this for almost 22 years now. But notice that David did not say, I trust in my ability to do righteousness before God. I trust in my flesh because I made the right choices. I made the right decisions. I'm leading the people in a godly way. Notice he didn't say any of that. He said, I trust the loving kindness of God because he recognized that even he could never be good enough. I mean, after that whole Bathsheba thing, I think we know David said, my sin is always before me. He recognized that he could never be good enough to achieve righteousness on his own or to achieve God accepting him on the basis of his own righteousness or works or goodness. So what does he trust in? I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. And that's a lesson I think we all can learn. What are you going to trust you're going to trust your religious affiliation or your denomination or your church attendance record? Are you going to trust the things that you did so you can go to Jesus and say, didn't I do great works in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I? Me, me, me. Is that what you're going to trust in? Or are you going to trust the loving kindness and the grace of God and his faithfulness to his own word, his faithfulness to his own covenants, his faithfulness to his own son, and that you are the recipient of nothing but grace that you just don't deserve. That's where your trust, that's where your faith has to be. David learned that the hard way, but he did learn it. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. And certainly you should be thankful toward God. I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. That's the proper declaration right there. David says, I trust your loving kindness. It's all about you. It's not about me. It's your nature. It's your character. It's your revelation of yourself. And I thank you and will give thanks to you forever, out into eternity. I will be constantly praising and thanking you, God, because you did it. It's not about me. It's not about my doing. It's not about any human doing. You're the one who accomplished all this. And because you're the accomplishing Savior 
I will thank you and praise you forever. And on top of that, then I will walk out my life. I will behave in such a way that it is plain that I give you all the credit. I will wait on you. That doesn't mean I'm going to stand around looking at my watch like you're late. You know, well, I'm waiting. It's like a waiter when you go to a restaurant. The person who serves you is called a waiter or a waitress because that's what they're doing. They're waiting on you. He's saying, I will serve you. I will walk out my life in such a way that it is an example of my thankfulness toward you, of my trust in you, my faith in your loving kindness. Because I recognize everything you have done for me, I will also wait on you. And I will wait on thy name, for it is good. Your name is good. That, by the way, is why God even has a commandment. It's not a suggestion. He even has one of the big ten, that is, you will not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Because his name is goodness. His name is righteousness. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven, the very next thing is, your name is hallowed. Your name is separate from us. Your name is righteous and holy. All the more reason not to take it in your own vanity, in your own fleshliness. It's not there to serve you. You're there to serve him. I will wait on your name, for it is good in the presence of your separated ones, your godly ones, your saints. The ones that God chose and separated are the ones who know that God is good and his name is good and we wait on him and we thank him forever because we're the ones who trust in his loving kindness. Amen. So the contrast is huge. The evil of men like Saul who are still ruling over people to this very day versus the saints of God who recognize the goodness and grace of God and thank him for it. Questions? Good stuff. <laughs> that's not a question. That's a comment. <laughs> we'll get to comments in a moment. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.